0: So let's cultivate our motivation and think about what does it really mean to help people? What does it really mean to benefit them? And together with that question are there ways in which We think we're benefiting somebody that actually isn't beneficial. But first, really, uh, think about what does it mean to benefit? What is the goal of benefiting? Then, based on what you come to about what it means to benefit and how to do that, then generate the bodhicitta. So, if your idea of benefiting others does not include developing your own skills and wisdom and compassion, then the then. you've missed the point of bodhicitta. So this uh, question of benefiting and what it means is uh, quite a serious question. Because usually when we think, oh, what does it mean to benefit? Then it's like, we translate that into, how can I change somebody? (laughs) Yeah. How can I change them? And so it becomes focused on changing the other person without realizing that benefiting isn't just a matter of knowledge or technique, it's also a matter of who we are as a human being and what we convey to others through our way of approaching situations and our way of handling things and our capacity to uh, to hold things, okay? So benefiting someone isn't just changing them and fixing them, okay? Uh, it has to do with changing ourselves so that we have something to offer that can be helpful to somebody. So it's both things. It's, you know, offering to sentient beings. But if we don't change ourselves, it's the blind leading the blind. Okay? So we have to... It's benefiting others isn't, I know everything and I'm bequeathing it on you, you very fortunate person who I'm benefiting. Uh, Don't forget. Uh, But it's Uh, really changing ourselves so that how we just feel and relate about people, then, you know, what we say and do becomes beneficial, okay? So it's two things combined, changing self, wanting to benefit others, okay? Now, what does it mean to benefit others? Because that's, you know, what this whole text is about, you know, we want to benefit others. So, um, like I said, very often our idea of benefiting somebody is to change them so that they will become what we think they should be, and so that they will think and feel what we think they should think and feel. Okay? And so uh, we think benefiting means giving advice. Okay? Now, have you ever been in a, you know, in a certain mood or a certain place in your life where people have given you advice when you didn't want advice? Yeah, what did you want at that time? Just to be heard. Just to be understood. Yeah, you don't want anybody else commenting and telling yourself, telling you, you shouldn't feel that way, you know, like you reassure them and, you know, you shouldn't feel that way and that's not realistic and uh, you don't think like that and then you tell them how they should think, yeah. So sometimes, I think very often actually, people just want to be heard, yeah, and if they want advice, yeah, as then they will ask for it. Sometimes they even ask for advice, but really, what they need is encouragement to figure things out on their own. Okay, they often say, "Oh, well, what do I do?" And then you give an, uh, you tell them, and they say, "Yes, but." You know, remember the yes, but people? So, what those people, what really will benefit them is encouragement to figure it out themselves. What do you think? You're in your own shoes. What do you think will benefit you? What do you think is a good way to regard this situation? Instead of playing Miss Fix It or Mr. Fix It. Mm-hmm. So this is something to think about. Um, you know, when you're a mentor to somebody, yeah, you know, like in the Abbey, we have mentors. Uh, the mentor isn't the one who tells you what to do, or gives you advice. Yeah, their foremost, their first thing is to listen to you, and to understand you. And if you need advice, then you ask for it. Okay, so it's not like I'm mentoring somebody. We sit down and then I say, well, I've noticed that you've been rather moody and here you should practice this and do that and don't do this and don't do that. Okay, somebody who's moody, that's, you know, they want some understanding first. Then maybe they're open to some thought training and, you know, things like that. But if you start out with the advice, you're losing them because what's happening is they feel, you know, nobody understands me. They're telling me what I'm feeling is wrong. But my feeling is my feeling. And of course, you're feeling your way of looking at things. It may be totally off the wall and crazy, but at that moment, you, be unless somebody understands you and you feel understood, you can't your mind is closed yeah so i'm not saying that's good you know having a closed mind is is not very good but if you're trying to mentor somebody you have to realize that sometimes their mind may not be open to all your pearls of wisdom <laughs> okay <laughs> that they just want to be heard okay so that's one part of it yeah now Then uh, another part is, uh, you know, the whole thing about helping. Yeah. And people want to help. When guests come here, they want to help. When little kids are around, they want to help. Anybody's ever noticed? Little kids love helping. They feel grown up when they help. And I remember... um, when I, I wrote to, um, Ryder and Naomi asking for pictures to put in the book, um, A Compassionate Kitchen, they took some pictures of their two little kids. Cara was maybe three at the time and, and, and Sage was, I don't know, most five, six. And, and, you know, they, <laughs> Naomi was working in the kitchen and there they are, you know, kind of trying to cut things and move, the, you know, move things from here and there and set the table. And, you know, when you're a little kid, it's like, you know, you set the table and everybody has three spoons and the napkin has fallen onto the ground and you pick it up and put it there. And, you know, it, it just, They're little kids. They don't know what they're doing, but they want to help. So if, as a parent, you, there's two things. You either correct them, you know, don't put the napkin there, put it here. No, we don't need three spoons. Look, you know, put out two spoons. And you're constantly correcting the child. The child is going to feel like, oh, I'm completely inept. And helping is a setup for me failing. Cause every time I try and help, I get criticized. I can't do it right. So I just won't help. I won't volunteer to help. Yeah. And then they grow up to be adults who don't like to help and who really resent when somebody asks them to help because in their mind, it's a setup to be criticized. You know, whoever asked you to help, or whoever we want to help is just going to trash you, okay? So this is something, if you're working, last time we talked about being in the kitchen, you know, and how disturbing it is when you cut the carrots one way, uh, one day, and then somebody else is the head cook the next day, and you start to carrot cut the carrots it's the same way, and they say, "No, don't cut the carrots that way, cut them this way, okay, so here you are trying to help, yeah, but you think there's one way to cut the carrots, yeah, because when you cut the carrots can uh, when you cook, the carrots can only be cut one way, yeah. So, somebody starts to cut them this way, and you walk over and you say, What are you doing? You know, cut the carrots this way into stripes, not this way into cylinders. And, you know, this happens in enough, like one or two times, and you stop wanting to help in the kitchen because, again, It's a setup for somebody to be unhappy with what you're doing even though you're doing your best and even though, believe it or not, there isn't one right way to cut the carrots. And the lunch will probably turn out just as good if the carrots are cut the other way. Okay? So, you know, when you're asking somebody to help, yeah. either give them the instructions before they start to help about how you want the carrots cut or let them cut the carrots any old way and you just cook and it'll be fine yeah that the uh, that encouraging somebody else and letting them know that you appreciate their help is much more important in the long term than having the carrots cut the way you want. Okay. Yeah, we're communicating. So then there's another element, yeah, is sometimes we don't want to let other people help. Yeah, we can be the parent who doesn't want to deal with the kids putting out five forks and, and you know, the napkins falling on the floor. <laughs> and they pick their, their it up and wipe their hands and put it on the table. You know, and the parents just don't want to deal with having to go and redo everything. So they tell the kids, oh, don't bother. I'll do it. Yeah, because the parent is thinking... If I let them help, it's just more time and energy for me. Uh, I'm exhausted as it is, and I just want to get the job done so it's easier to do it myself, because these people just don't know how to do it, and I'll have to fix it afterwards. Okay? So if you're a parent and you you act like that towards your kids, your kids are not going to want to help, okay? Because they've been told... You know they can see in your face that before they've even started, yeah, you think they're going to fail, you know, and that they're just going to be oh god, I have to do it all over again. Why did I let somebody do this? Okay, so then the kids grow up not wanting to help, yeah, and then they come here and somebody asks them to help, and it's like. Mm-hmm. Who are you asking me to help? You know, I don't want to help. So, you know, again, if you are, you know, how the Abbey has its teams and you're a team leader, or at work, you know, if you have a regular job and you are the manager, yeah, look at your own mind that doesn't want to give other people a chance and your own mind that demands perfection and doesn't really want to go slowly and teach somebody how to do something and doesn't want to let people figure out their own way to do it. Yeah. Because, again, believe it or not, yeah, somebody new to the job may have some better ideas about how to make the job more efficient than you do, even though you're the senior, you're the boss, you're the manager, whatever you are, okay? And so it's very important that we don't just think, oh, I'm the only one who can do this, yeah, because it, it shuts people out You know, and people, they want to help. They want to feel like they can contribute. Yeah. They want to feel that their energy is valued. And that starts when you're a little kid. You want to help. Yeah. And as an adult, you know, people come here. They want to help. But if we immediately, you know, our thought is, Oh, I gotta get lunch out at a certain time. So I don't want them around because they just distract me and they don't get the carrots right, and I have to go back and cut them. And they they then they cook the carrots and they either burn the carrots or they don't cook them enough. And you know, I'm in a hurry, I gotta get this all done. Yeah. That uh, you know, that can again really uh, make people feel like they don't belong. You know, when you're allowed to help. And you're given a task that you can help with, uh, then you feel like you belong. Yeah. And when you feel like you belong in a place, then you automatically want to help. Yeah. Because you know that what you can do makes a difference, a positive difference in the lives of other living beings. Okay. So. So then what are you supposed to do if you're cooking and you have to stop and, you know, uh, because you forgot to tell them how to cut the carrots at the beginning. Now you have to go back and do it again. And now you have to go and tell them how long to cook it. And, you know, it's just a pain in the neck for you. And lunch is late and everybody's sitting there going you know so what do you do well you think ahead before you start cooking oh what a new idea you know i knew there's going to be some different people helping me today in the kitchen or helping me to, you know, there's people gonna uh, that are going to help me in the office, or there are people who are going to help me out in the forest, or there's people who are going to help me, whatever it is. Think ahead and, you know, and train the people. Let them know how how the task is done, you know, And before they start, so you don't have to correct them. And then if they don't do it the way you want, but it turns out good anyway, open your mind, because maybe they know something you don't. Okay? But it's good to approach things like that rather than, you know, oh, it's such a pain in the neck training somebody. Yeah? But really... um, You know, because that's how you pass things down, isn't it? One generation trains the next generation. If you don't train the kids properly, then you get a bunch of brats. So, yeah. Yeah, so really, think these are just some simple examples that I'm giving, okay? And you can identify with them. But you know, thinking in other aspects too. Yeah. How does it really mean to uh, to help somebody and to train them? Yeah. When they, when do they need you to to actually sit down and hands on explain it? When do they need you to just orally explain it? When do they need to just let you? free and, and, and do what you want. Okay. So, uh, you know, don't always see yourself as the, the junior and the, gee, these seniors, they didn't listen to that. I hope that, you know, which by the way, we should take this little talk and make it into a BBC and put it on. But it's like, I'm going to refer the seniors to go listen to this again. You know, my my boss has to listen to this talk. You know, uh, don't see it that way because all of us are at both ends. There are different things where we're the one who has to learn from somebody else how to do it, and different t- t- uh, tasks where we're the one uh, encouraging somebody to do it. And I remember Venerable Wu-Yin very clearly when, back in 1996 when she was teaching at Life as a Western Buddhist Nun. And she said, whoever has responsibility for that project, whether they're a junior or a senior, you follow their directions. Okay? So if a junior is managing a project, as a senior you don't go in you know and and say hey you know uh, cut it out and as a junior also when a senior's managing you don't go in and say you know what is it um hey 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 boomer or move over boomer or whatever it is you know okay. what okay boomer whatever it is you know it means get out of here <laughs> you know So when you're the person in the follower role, be a good follower. Don't complain all the time. Yeah, We had a skit one time um, a few years ago because, uh, uh, you know, people wearing the Anagarika clothes. It's different wearing Anagarika clothes. And uh, the skit was was so great. It wasn't just about Anagarica clothes, but it was about all these kinds of things. And one person coming up, I think you you were in the scans. Oh, it's too hot out, and this has long sleeves. I wanna wear short sleeves. And, the <laughs> and then somebody else saying, it has long sleeves, but I'm cold. I wanna wear a jacket on top, but you're telling me to put my jacket underneath. And And you know, and it had all the juniors coming, And complaining, yeah, Uh, which happens. (laughs) You know, everybody wants to change change it. And there are some things when you're training uh, to be a monastic where this is the way something is done because we're a community and we have to uh, act uh, together and do things as a group, okay? So, for example... Uh, we all try and hold our hands, put your palms together, tuck your thumbs in, and hold them straight up. Okay, now you may be used to holding your hands in front like this. Yeah? And saying, yeah, I take refuge in the Buddha, you know, da-da-da. But at this abbey, everybody's holding it like this. yeah, And it is a little bit uncomfortable it's much more comfortable go like this, yeah, to do like this and have and so you get it like that, but then your your palms are still separated. Yeah. And so when I was training in Taiwan, I mean they would walk past you and it was like, put your palms together, and they were always correcting my, my collar. And you can see to this day that it needs correction. Um Okay, but there's certain things when you're training that we we want to look a certain way, walk a certain way. When we're doing the, uh, nam, the Namo the Namawami tofo chanting and the serpentine walking, yeah, you want to you look at the leader, okay, and hopefully you have a leader who's in step. And you pace yourself the way the leader does, okay? So that when the leader's putting their right foot forward, you're putting your right foot forward. And when they put their left foot forward, you put your left foot forward, okay? So it's, the leader is walking in in time with the beat. So as soon as you get in the beat, then it's okay. If you go downstairs or upstairs or make a transition from one room to the other, it's good just to check and make sure you're in step, okay? But most of the time, uh, you know, it's just we walk our own speed. <laughs> yeah. Or another thing uh, I won't say who. Uh, the leader uh, has very big strides, and you and everybody else can't keep up with them. <laughs> yeah. Has anybody experienced that? And so you're kind of taking all sorts of little steps to keep up with them and still trying to hold to the, the, the beat, you know. So, you know, everybody needs to adjust in one way or another, okay? Okay, so, just thought to say that. General sent me some things to read this morning, yeah. She's working very hard on uh, the um, all, all the things for the Buddha Hall, so she sent me all these other articles of things that she thought were interesting. I haven't read the one on Christian nationalism yet, but I did read the other two you sent me. So um, yeah, please continue working very hard. <laughs> Um, Okay, so let's come back to the text here. Okay, we'll we'll, uh, again review with verse 46, okay? So Shantideva here is speaking to his uh, disturbing emotions, okay? So it's saying disturbing conceptions here, but it means... Disturbing emotions and wrong views, you know, distorted views. So, deluded, disturbing conceptions. When forsaken by the eye of wisdom, when your wisdom is able to conquer the afflictive emotions and afflictive views, and, you know, you are dispelled from my mind, where will you go? Okay, so, you know, when, when you've... Uh, perfected uh, fortitude and when you've realized emptiness, where is your anger going to go? Where is your irritation going to go? Okay. If it goes in your stomach and you're getting anxious, then, you know, something is amiss in the way you're practicing because you're stuffing the emotions instead of, putting forth, instead of applying the antidote. So, you know, combating the afflictive emotions doesn't mean stuffing them, okay, and pretending that you don't feel the way you feel. It means, in, in sutrayana, it means looking at what the antidote is, which is usually the opposite of how you're looking at things and applying that antidote so that you actually change your mind you actually change how you are looking at things yeah you're not just painting pink over purple yeah you're eliminating the purple and, and then putting the pink okay that's just an example I'm not You know, uh, it's not a sexist, a racist example. Please don't take it the wrong way. Okay. Purple people, I am not oppressing you. (laughs) And pink people, I am not praising you. I am talking about antidotes to anger. (laughs) Okay. So the, the idea is, where do all these things go? Yeah? So where will you dwell in order to be able to injure me again later? Yeah. So they're not like an external enemy that goes somewhere else, regroups, develops a new strategy, and comes and attacks back. Once they've been fully conquered, they're obliterated. You know, they can't come back. Weak-minded, I have been reduced to making no effort. So here's a path to transform myself. But it's so hard and I really don't feel like it. You know, tomorrow I'll do that. Today I really don't feel like, you know, let me have my chocolate and be quiet. (laughs) You know? Okay. So verse 47. If these disturbing conceptions do not exist within the objects, the sense organs, between the two or elsewhere, then where in the world do they exist, and how could they harm the world? They are like an illusion, thus I should dispel the fear within my heart and strive resolutely for wisdom, for no reason why should I suffer so much in hell." So this verse is very interesting. Here, this verse is getting us to apply wisdom and understand the emptiness of the afflictions. Okay. Because when we usually think of an affliction, it appears as one solid thing to us. You know, I have a problem with anger. I have a problem with greed or whatever your problem is. I have a problem with low self-esteem. And that thing, you know, is one thing. Anger is one solid thing. Greed is one solid thing. Low self-esteem is doubly solid. One thing, you know. But here, we're starting to analyze. What exactly is it? Okay, so one way of analogy. Analyzing is, and this, this is when, um, you know, sometimes in psychology when they talk about anger, you know, you're repressing your anger. So you get the idea. I don't know about you, but how I kind of visualize it is my anger is right there. It's one big solid thing and it's sitting there and it's, It's one big solid thing, and it's just going to rise up and come out again. Okay? And it's the same anger I had before, and it's the same anger I'm always going to have, because I've always had a problem with anger, and there it is, and it's just going to, the same thing's going to come up. But is anger really one solid thing that is always the same every time? When we say the word anger, what is the basis of designation? What are we calling anger? Is there one solid thing in your mind that is anger? Or is anger, what we call anger, a designation on a series, on on a uh, a group of mental states that have the similarity of having exaggerated the, da- the bad qualities of something and wanting to get away from it or destroy it. Okay? So it's anger, this one clump that it's anger that you don't examine and ask what it is because it's just one permanent thing or is anger just a name you give on several things several mental states that have a somewhat similar quality okay how about low self-esteem or self-hatred or whatever you call it is it you know self-hatred there it is One thing, you know, as heavy as, what's the heaviest element? Helium? No. Oh, she's in the kitchen. (sighs) Anyway, whatever the heaviest element is. Yeah. Anyway, the heaviest one. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah. If she comes out, we'll ask her. Our physicist, our resident physicist will know. (laughs) Um, you know, we treat, we look at it, you know, there it is. It's just this one heavy thing. Uranium Uranium is the heaviest one? Okay. Thank you. So, uh, it is one heavy thing that is permanent, that is, you know, it's not going to change. It's just there. Yeah. But is it? Is it there already, just waiting to come up? Or what we call, you know, self-hatred or, you know, lack of self-confidence. Is it just a name that we give to various mental states that have a similar quality of criticizing ourselves? Yeah? It's just a name given to different things that we're grouping together. Okay? So it's the same way. I mean, when we say cup, you know, we think the cup is one solid thing. But actually, it's a name we're giving to a bunch of parts put in a certain arrangement. And aside from the parts put in that arrangement and are calling it cup, there's nothing we can point to that is a cup. So without there being a group of very different mental states that happen at different times that aren't always there, but they do have one quality in common, we label it lack of confidence. Or we label it greed, or whatever it is. Okay. But it's not one solid thing. It's something that exists by being merely designated. When you think about your faults in that way, things kind of lighten up in your mind. Because you aren't thinking of them like this. Yeah. You're thinking of them. As you know, like little dust motes that you're just having to, you know, put a circle around and call a name instead of something that's permanent, unchangeable in you, ready to rise up and attack you. Okay, so here in this verse, too, okay. So it's asking. Let's, let's let's take resentment. Okay, anybody have a problem with resentment? Let's take jealousy. That's even better. Let's take jealousy. Anybody have a problem with jealousy? No, nobody here has a problem with jealousy. Okay, but pretend you do. Okay, for the sake of what I'm saying. Okay, so a, a disturbing emotion like jealousy does not exist. In the object, okay, so you're jealous of somebody else, okay? We're jealous of uh venerable so-and-so, okay? So does your jealousy exist in venerable so-and-so? No. Okay. How about the sense organs? Your eye uh, faculty that is seeing venerable so-and-so's body. Does the does the jealousy exist in your eye faculty? No. Okay. Does it exist between venerable so-and so and your eye faculty that's perceiving him? No. Okay. So Shanti's Deva is saying, if this jealousy does not exist within the other person, within your sense faculty, or between the two, or anywhere else, does your jealousy exist somewhere else? Is it in somebody else? Do you catch it from somebody else? Yeah. Are you sure your jealousy isn't in that person? Because we say, you made me jealous, as if the jealousy is coming out of them like COVID, and it's, it's hacking me, and I fall ill with jealousy that I caught from the other person. That's the way it sometimes feels, doesn't it? You're making me jealous. Why do you have to act that way? You act so arrogant and you know I get jealous and it makes me unhappy. We act like it's it's coming from the other person. We also say, you made me angry. I didn't get angry. I'm a very harmonious, benevolent person. You made me angry. Angry. Yeah. The anger, the horrible thing, is coming out of you. Again, here's the COVID virus, the COVID of anger, and I've got it. But the thing is, you can recover from COVID. It's going to go away at some point, or you die, and then you get another body. Hopefully after COVID. <laughs> but you know, your, your illness isn't gonna go hide somewhere else and then come back and get you. Okay. I mean your your illness could, you know, come back and and get you. But your jealousy, yeah. Once you destroy, once you have recovered from COVID, it's not going to come back and catch you. If you haven't recovered from it, and you go out and do something stupid, then it'll get worse. Yeah. We all know that, and we all go out and do stupid things. Not necessarily with COVID, but with other things, don't we? Yeah? Very often when we're sick, do we do what we need to do to recover when we're sick or when we're injured? No, we do what we feel like. <laughs> yeah, the doctor gives us instructions. <laughs> yeah, and we say, oh, thank you very much. And then we do what we want. Yeah. Okay, so where do they, they exist? Where do these afflictions exist? And how do they harm the world if we can't pinpoint exactly where they are? We say they're not in venerable so and so. They're not in between. They're not in my eye faculty. They're not between us. They're in my mind. My jealousy is in my mind. There it is. You know, what color is it? Green. Green. (laughs) What texture is it? Green. Grainy, stink, pointy. 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 pointy, and sharp. Okay, burning. Yeah, there it is. It's in my brain. Yeah. So some people say your jealousy is in your. It's in here. Okay. So let's examine you. Let's, for the sake of of argument, you can open your skull. Are you going to find jealousy in your skull? No, you're going to find a bunch of gray stuff. Okay. Well, the jealousy is in the neurons. So you go and you look at a neuron. Does that neuron look like jealousy? It's not in the neuron. It's in the synapse between the neurons. So you look at the synapses between the neurons. Do you see something there that's jealousy? Yeah? Tell me where is this jealousy? Yeah? Where is it? in my mind, it's formless. Well, okay, which consciousness is it in? Is it in your visual consciousness? Your auditory consciousness? Your olfactory consciousness? Your gustatory consciousness? Your tactile consciousness? Your mental consciousness? Where is the jealousy? Which consciousness? Oh, it's in my mental consciousness. I've found it. Which mental consciousness? The one that's thinking about lunch? The one that's thinking about emptiness? The one that's sleeping? The one that is remembering venerable so-and-so? Which mental consciousness is your jealousy in? Or is your jealousy, which one? Okay. So you look all over. Where is this I mean, they say even, you know, you look under the rocks, you look under the table, you look everywhere. Where is that jealousy? Because you want to catch it and smash it. Okay, so where do they exist and how do they harm the world? How does my jealousy make me miserable and make me do things that make other people miserable when I'm jealous? How does it operate? How does you know, how does jealousy make me miserable? How does it make me? Move my mouth to say, you know, this person's really an idiot. You know, because we have to put down the person we're jealous of, don't we? Yeah. So what is it? How does that work? Okay. So your conclusion, Shanti Deva says, they are like an illusion. Yeah. The jealousy is, is an appearance that when you analyze and try and find out exactly what it is, you can't identify something that is, it, that is it. It appears to be one solid thing. It does not exist the way it appears because it isn't one solid thing. So it appears, so it functions, the appearance functions, yeah, jealousy functions, but we can't find something that is it when we analyze. So that's how the two truths come together, on one base, okay? Something appears but you can't find it when you analyze. Okay. They are like an illusion. Thus I should dispel the fear within my heart and strive resolutely for wisdom. Why am I so afraid of my afflictions? Why am I so weak in, you know when faced with them? They're not even something I can find as one solid thing. Yeah. So this is going back to the last line of the previous verse. Weak-minded, I have been reduced to making no effort. So this verse is analyzing why am I so weak-minded. And, you know, you come up when you've done this analysis, like, it doesn't make any sense. You know? It's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to feel like it's so huge that I have to, you know, call out the National Guard and and everything, okay? For no real reason, why should I suffer so much in hell? So when I act out my jealousy and I say all these nasty things and I interfere with somebody else's happiness because I'm jealous, then I experience the result of a lower rebirth. So why why should I keep experiencing these awful rebirths over something that I can't even find when I look for it? Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, this you realize that uh, thought has a lot of power. Thought has more power than external things. The mind has more power than external things. Because the mind is what created this whole thing. Any questions about um, the the elsewhere in the fourfold analysis? Uh I always get confused by this one. The example you used was like someone giving you anger.
1: Yeah. That kind of felt
0: like between the two in my my perception of things. I'm confused what elsewhere is. Elsewhere is, it just means anywhere else. Yeah. It doesn't have to be something specific here. It's just saying, is it in the object? Is it in the sense organ? Uh, Is it elsewhere? And then your mind says, yeah oh it's in my it's in my mind i mean it's in my brain it's in here and then we analyze is it in here because then your brain becomes the elsewhere and then your it's not in your brain then it's in my mind so your mind becomes the elsewhere yeah or maybe you think your jealousy is you know hidden underneath <laughs> the basket of flowers <laughs> so you look under there okay Okay, I'll do the next verse, and then we'll, again, pause for questions. Did that answer your you You're okay? Yeah, of course. Okay, verse 48. Therefore, having thought about this well, I should try to put these precepts into practice just as they have been explained so precepts doesn't necessarily mean something that we've taken, you know, in the presence of the Buddha. Precept can also mean advice, you know. Okay, Thus I should try and to put this advice into practice, just as it has been explained. Yeah. If the doctor's instructions are ignored, how will a patient in need of a cure be healed by the medicine? So this analogy of the Buddha being like a doctor, the Dharma being uh, like the medicine and the Sangha being like the nurse, nurses, it comes up a lot, yeah. So first we you know we have to get our relationship with our doctor, correct. <laughs> you know <laughs> when the doctor gives us advice, yeah, we well, check out the doctor first, you don't go to some quack. Okay, so you check out the the qualities of the doctor first. And if you say, oh, he looks qualified, you know, then follow the instructions. Take the medicine, yeah? Don't just get the prescription and then put it, you know, in your back pocket and forget about it. Or don't fill the prescription, or don't go to physical therapy or occupational therapy or whatever was prescribed for you. And, and then just say, you know, this doesn't help me, I don't need it. And So you stop taking the medicine, you stop going for the therapy. Yeah. You know, really try and follow the instructions and see if it works. And if it's not working, you know, sometimes it could be that you need a higher dose, or you need a longer prescription, yeah. Or sometimes they need to change it a little bit. But give it a chance. Don't just meditate on the antidote to jealousy one time and think that your is all going to be bye-bye. You know, it's gonna ha- it's gonna take some time and re- repetition. Okay. Okay. So that finishes the fourth chapter on conscientiousness. So we'll pause again for questions here. It's mostly a comment, um, When I'm able to really analyze the power of the mind by this type of diluted thinking, then the idea of the mind be able, being able to create the causes to have the Buddha bodies does not seem so out there. The power to be able to create the kind of reality Mm. that the deluded mind creates for us and the suffering. Mm-hmm. The opposite of that, to use the same power of this mind to be able to create the kind of wisdom, the kind of reality mm. that a Buddha has, doesn't seem like it's out in space somewhere. Right. Yeah. Because you realize the whole potential is inside here. Yeah, it's the mind that creates heaven. It's the mind that creates hell.
1: Um, regarding the
0: last... Um First, applying the medicine, mm, it seems to be sometimes very difficult for people to do um, in worldly aspect as well as in Dharma mm-hmm. aspect. So, do you have some more advice to give to students? Okay. So, in worldly aspect, that's where the nurses comes in. When you're having trouble taking the medicine because you forgot, there's you know so many pills, and you take. You know, one blue one in the morning and three green ones in the afternoon and a pink one at night. Or do you take three purple ones in the morning and one chartreuse one at lunch and, you know, so you forget. So similarly in our Dharma practice, we forget what the antidotes are. Okay, so then you turn to the nurses. And the, the nurses remind you what... practice so you turn to your dharma friends you turn to the sangha yeah this is why living in a sangha community is very important you know if you're going to ordain living in a community is important because you get the support of everybody else who's practicing and when you you know aren't taking your medicine or you're you're getting confused about how to take it you can get immediate help from the sangha around you if you're living out on your own, you know, it's hard to find the people who will, you know, yeah, if I can't if I can't remember you know what pills to take, okay? Well, I did it just this last week. I went to venerable jigme because I wanted to know how many amoxicillin I had to take before I go to the the dentist, you know. And she told me, and I believe her, and that's how many I'll take. And she even told me when to take it. Okay? So I'll I'll do that. But if Venerable Jigme isn't here, okay, maybe I'll go on the Internet. I asked Venerable Semke, but actually,
1: she gave me the wrong number.
0: It's four. Your ears was two. Okay, but mine was actually four. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so I- I- in the same way, you know, the, the nurse also, you know, it, it, there's a big pill. If you've ever taken to med- Tibetan medicine, they come, we call them the dirt balls, they come in these, well actually they're, they're about this big maybe, like the size of a, a of a nickel, you know, I don't know if people even use nickels anymore. You know, but this, around the size, it's a it's sphere. It's a sphere, and they're really hard. They're the kind that will send you to the dentist with a broken tooth. So you know, you forget how to to take your your Tibetan medicine, yeah uh, and and you need help with it. So the nurse takes it and puts it in a a mortar and pestle, and grinds it up, okay, and mixes it with some applesauce, and then takes a spoon and goes, open wide, zoom, and helps you to take the medicine. Okay? So in the same way, you know, when we're practicing, we're trying to work on something, and, you know, It's like it's hard work. The sangha can, you know, cheer us up and let us know we're not the only ones. And they can give us some tips on how to practice. And, you know, new ways to look at something.
1: So to go back, where is your anger? Where is your jealousy? Um, I think some people have a theory that it's in the body. And sometimes Ah. the advice is like, Look in the body. Where's your anger? It's in your stomach. We'll focus on that area, yeah. but there's also this theory that, like you know, we store memories kind of in the in yeah. the energy centers of our body, and yeah. then they get blocked, and that's why we get sick. And then we have to purify, you know, to remove uh-huh. these blockages. So, how would you explain that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So uh, the way I, I would look at it, and other people have different ideas. Um, is, you know, okay, my anger's in my stomach. I visualize my stomach, and I look, and, you know, there's whatever I ate for breakfast, but I don't see any anger, you know. And already when I just do that, and there's no anger in my stomach, already my stomach starts to react, to, to relax, Whereas if I visualize the anger as um, what's, what's it called the uh, the Chinese the very heavy rice sticky rice, if I imagine my anger as a ball of sticky rice, because when I the way my body functions, if I eat sticky rice it's right there at the bottom of my stomach for a while, okay? So if I think my anger is like a ball of sticky rice, but even heavier, and it's sitting there at the bottom of my stomach, and it's not going anywhere, then I'm going to really feel like my stomach's going to hurt, okay? If I think... Oh, you open it up and there's, you know, the remnants of, what was there, pancakes? You know? Um, That's not anger. And, you know, you can relax your stomach a bit. Now, memories being stored in parts of your body. I don't think the memories themselves are there because memories are consciousnesses. Okay? But I think that... uh, just as there is a, uh, um, a relationship between the brain and the mind, there can be a, a relationship between parts of your body that are particularly sensitive because you've had a previous experience where that part of your body was injured, you know. So that part of your body is sensitive. But I wouldn't say the memory is there, stuck in the, in the part of your body. yeah. Because I find for me, whenever I concretize something, and I say it's there, then also in my mind it becomes heavier. If I just say, you know, I, I had, you know, when I was little, you know, I got whacked. And so this part of my body where I was whacked, it's really sensitive, and you know if if you know sometimes it's somebody just push you know touches it too hard i you know i flare up it's it's not that the memory is there it's the part of your body is associated with the memory, okay, yeah. So I don't see it as the memories in there and I have to take the memory out and you know you might visualize that if that helps you thinking of the the memory of getting beaten and you know is inside there and you take it and throw it out fine but I prefer not to think of it as something in there to start with
1: Yes, that's exactly how I experience it, is that especially for traumatic situations, the memory is so vivid and so strong, and it's associated with a particular part of the body. It could be also associated with smell. It could be associated with a sound. Right. It could be associated not just with um, the particular type of the body, but also a sensation. Mm-hmm. And so when those things are replicated by another situation, that memory comes about again with all of the other things that are attached to that memory. Whether it be anger, it would be sense of vulnerability, a sense of fear. You know, so all that sort of is sort of linked yeah. together. Yeah, and that's how, in my experience, uh, it works. Right.
0: Yeah, it's an. As- I like the way you said it's an
1: association.
0: Yeah, and so one small thing triggers it. And that that thing, that's maybe physical thing, is associated with that previous experience. Okay. And that triggers the whole flashback or whatever it is. But it's interesting. You know, there's a few things to ask here. And I may push some buttons. Okay. First, First thing is... It triggers that memory. Is that incident happening now? What's the difference between a memory and a current
1: experience? Yeah, it seems like for the brain, the strength of the memory makes it believe, makes it appear as if it's happening now. It has that same strength is fools the brain and the mind thinking it's happening now. It
0: fools the brain. But is it happening now? It appears to be happening now. Is it happening now? No. Hold on. Okay. You know, somebody beat me up in first grade... And now, as an adult, uh, you know, somebody called me the same name that they called me in first grade right before they beat me up. I hear that name, even though they call it somebody else now, and I get this whole fear reaction of here comes somebody to beat me up. Is somebody beating me up right now? No. Okay. So you may say the brain gets fooled. But again, is the experience in the brain? Yeah. If you had a brain there without a mind, would that experience be there in that brain? Yeah. You had a brain, but there was no mind, would that experience? Can the the brain, which is physical material, can it is it excel itself what experiences? No, it's physical material. Yeah. And you can it can be dissected into all its elemental parts. Yeah. What the brain is doing, it may have an association with the experience, but it is not the experience. Okay. So, this experience, this memory that comes back so strong, it's in the mind. It's not happening now. And then another question to ask is. Is my memory of what happened a hundred, is it an objective reality? The person who beat me up, does that person see the situation in first grade the same way as I see it? When you remember something, are you remembering everything about it from everybody's perspective? Or are you remembering it from your own perspective and having it filtered through my perspective is the most important, my perspective is the one reality. Is there one reality? You know, this this is what comes up so often in so many situations. Uh, you know, that that happen where people see a situation one way, somebody else in the same situation sees it in a totally different way, and they impute different motives on all of the different players. And they impute different degrees of harm on all the players. But when we remember something, it's through the, the viewpoint of me. And of course, my viewpoint is one objective, correct reality. Is it really? My viewpoint is the only reality, my viewpoint is objective. It's never exaggerated. My viewpoint notices every detail in the situation. Really? Okay? So hold on. So I find I'm just talking for myself personally, that asking myself these kinds of questions loosens the whole situation. Because I see it's like a movie that I'm playing in my own mind. It's not an objective reality. If it's a movie I'm playing, I can play a different movie. Or if I want to play the movie of this situation, I could play it from the other person's point of view and try and really understand what the other person is going through. Let me give you an example. I will give you some time. Hold on. I'm reading Obama's book right now, A Promised Land. What I am so impressed with is he, you know, he's on the campaign trail. And you'll remember uh, the first his first run for president. He was campaigning heavily against Hillary and Hillary and, you know, it was getting really rough and insults going back and forth and everything like that. And Obama, in his book, he talks about Hillary's strengths and he talks about how Hillary must be looking at him as here's this young kid, inexperienced, he's only, you know, He was a state senator. He's only partway through his his term as a U.S. senator. He's young, no experience, and he's coming in, and he thinks that he's the most qualified. And Obama is saying this, you know, about how Hillary is probably looking at him. And he's also admiring her strengths— And saying how clear she is and how qualified she is and how she's really done her homework on all these issues and she knows how to handle stress and everything. It's amazing, you know, and I really respect him for it because he was able to look at the situation of how she must be looking at him when they're competing with each other. Yeah? And that took, you know, so by doing that, he didn't hate her. He saw her good qualities and then asked her to be secretary of state because he knew she would do a good job. Okay? So this is is the thing when we can see that our perspective is not one objective reality. Yeah? Now your turn. Okay. Okay. (laughs)
1: In fact, I am not going to disagree at all with what you're saying. I completely agree with what you're saying. In fact, I wanted to give a testimony to that um, practice of checking back and asking ourselves, am I in that same situation? Because few years back here at the Abbey I I had a very strong flashback about a very um, traumatic experience and it was a situation that triggered it and I kept on saying that to myself exactly look at the situation look at where you're at see your surroundings see yourself see the other person you're not in that same situation so the problem not the problem What goes along with that, however, is that it takes um, a lot of effort and continued practice Mm -hmm. to make the brain believe and understand that you are in a very different situation. So it's not something that happens that you can turn off on a dime. Mm -hmm. It requires that um, very, uh, what can I say, uh, focused sort of intervention like an antidote almost it's like an antidote you mm-hmm. here is some idea or some image that the brain is presenting and you're trying to present the, the other idea how about instead of saying the brain is doing that the mind i'm sorry say the mind, the mind. is mind. doing it so the if mind you say the brain it. you're solidifying it yes thank you venerable yeah so it um, and it may at that particular moment help to restrain some of the more overt behaviors and feelings and reactions to that, but it does not completely undermine it. It requires some lengthy work to be able to do right. That's all I wanted to add. That's Right, it
0: requires lengthy work. That's why we call it practice. It's the same as Dharma practice. You don't apply the antidote once. It's a thing of rehabituating the mind. Yeah. And it takes practice. The thing that is hard for us is in our present society, we expect things to happen quickly. You put however much money it requires to buy a soft drink in a machine, you get that drink right away. On your computer, you click— And the thing comes up right away. If there's a slight delay in how it comes up, like even a half a second, do you get irritated? It's like, wait. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I clicked it. Why do I have to wait a half a second for this to come up? It should be immediate. So, this is, you know how we are habituated from our society. So we have to actually change that habit, too, of thinking that it's going to be quick, it's going to be easy, I do it once, and I'm enlightened. So that's why we need the Buddha Dharma Sangha. We need the doctor, the medicine, and the nurse. but if you keep doing it it things change that's the thing yeah